Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Moses Park is a living embodiment of the international trends we cover on this podcast. He is a Korean who went to college in the United States, obtained a master's in the UK, then studied law and became a barrister in Hong Kong. His practice focuses on cross-border commercial litigation and arbitration, covering a broad spectrum of commercial work with an emphasis on civil fraud, asset tracing and recovery, enforcement of foreign arbitral awards and judgments, securities and investment products, as well as construction litigation and arbitration. He has a particular specialty in multi-jurisdictional disputes involving international parties and matters with a cross-border element. His work extends to regulatory fields, providing advice on matters governed by securities and immigration legislation, often involving a mix of private and public law elements. Moses, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Hi, thank you for having me. Moses, welcome. Before your legal career, you were an officer in the Korean Navy. Can you please tell us about that experience and how it's impacted you as a professional? Yes, as you know, um, Korea has a mandatory military service. And um, as part of my uh, military service, I chose to uh, serve in the Navy. So I was a Navy officer for almost about uh, four years. I was a teaching officer at the Korean Naval Academy. Um, So it was a cushy job, but one of the tours that I did uh, whilst I was in the Navy was to um, sail halfway around the world because um, our naval cadets called uh, missionmen, college students, uh, when they reach their fourth year, they have to sail around the world and uh, learn on the job uh, while they're sailing. So I, w- I, was, uh, I was part of the, uh, the team there. And um, we started our uh, journey from Busan, Korea, um, to Vladivostok, uh, Russia, Japan, uh, Vietnam. So there, there were, I think, 15 port, ports that we went to. And uh, we went all the way to the Somali waters. Um, the Gulf of Aden, where uh, piracy happens. And uh, we were there to set up an anti-piracy operation of our Korean Navy. So that was sort of the highlight of uh, my naval career. And um, as you can imagine, 
you learned how to discipline yourself uh, when you're in the Navy or in the military. And you learn to perform under pressure. So I would say that's what I got the most from my uh, naval experience and built me as a professional. And with you being uh, in South Korea, of course, close to the DMZ, I'm always curious, and probably everybody asks you about North Korea, but can you give us a little bit of flair on um, what you may have learned uh, in your military time about uh, interacting with, with North Koreans? North Korean is always a threat or a potential threat to South Korea. Uh, it's unpredictable. So that's why we have to be ready uh, militarily. Even though we see it in the military as a threat, politically and diplomatically, we try to uh, always have peaceful relationship with our northern neighbor. It's difficult to say because we have lived with our northern neighbor for such a long time as sort of enemy and friend um, because you know, we were all Koreans in the end. So South Korean people are immune to having this, this uh, potential threat in the north. So when you go to Korea, travel to Korea, you don't feel like you are living under this threat, so to speak. So everything is pretty peaceful. There, there's no war going on, even though uh, the war, the Korean War has never officially ended. Thanks for that perspective. One of the things that I found interesting when I when I visited Korea was was just how close um, the the DMC is to to Seoul. When you're in the city, it's you don't feel as if there's a you know a cloud of potential violence hanging over you. But of course, once you when you drive up to the to the DMC, right, pretty pretty quickly, you start to realize how close it actually it actually is. Very interesting to hear about the details of your experience in, in the Navy. I guess you have an even more international profile than I, than I realized. I mean, you, you, you know, I would, have, I would have definitely mentioned that in the introduction had I, had I know, I guess, all, all good material for, for a repeat visit to, to the podcast. But I'd like to ask you about Hong Kong. We were briefly talking about the city when you were in the uh, virtual green room. But what prompted you to study and develop a career in, in Hong Kong. I should mention for our listeners' benefit, Moses and I studied at the Chinese University of Hong Kong at the same time, and we met during orientation. We were part of a very small group of foreign students. And of course, there was a lot of curiosity regarding what we were doing there. Studying in Hong Kong didn't seem like such an outlandish idea. I was doing it myself, but the fact that you've stayed there and not only stay there, I mean, you're, you're, you've really integrated into the, the legal profession there, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're a real Hong Kong lawyer. You're not there as other, <laughs> you know, foreign attorneys who, who are sort of floating uh, around the edges of the profession. So what prompted you? What was it about, about Hong Kong that appealed to you? When we started out at CUHK as students, did, did you know you wanted to stay in Hong Kong? Or was that something that basically an idea that developed once you were in the city and started uh, learning more about it and learning more about the profession there? From the time that I set my foot in Hong Kong, I, I knew I wanted to stay in Hong Kong. 
Uh, just to give you a little bit of background, ever since I was very little, um, not knowing you know, what lawyers uh, do or litigation lawyers do uh, in particular, uh, I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, so it has been my childhood dream to become a lawyer. Um, when I was studying in the U.S., I studied political science and government. And uh, when I was studying in the U.K., I studied uh, comparative politics. Um, so those subjects are sort of related to law, uh, but not directly. But I knew that after my graduation from my postgrad and upon completing my naval career in Korea, I knew that I uh, wanted to become a lawyer. So when I was in the Navy, I was, uh, I was looking at the map, where should I go to practice law? And I didn't want to, given my academic career and you know, having spent so much time overseas, I didn't want to practice Korean law. I wanted to do um, something uh, cross-border related, more international. So I, I was looking at the map. So I don't want to practice law in Korea. So where should I go? And clearly, I did not want to go back to the U.S. or to England because I had been away from my family for such a long time that I wanted to stay close to Korea but at the same time, practice law. And I looked at Hong Kong and Singapore. Um, the reason that I looked at two cities was because um, whilst I was doing some research, I found out that international arbitration, uh, the traditional hubs for international arbitration um, were Paris and London. But Around the time that I was completing my naval career, uh, the international arbitration scene was shifting uh, from the West to the East. And Hong Kong and Singapore were becoming uh, international arbitration hubs. And naturally, you know, international arbitration, I was interested in, in it. And oh, well, how about I start my career in Hong Kong or Singapore? So I came to Hong Kong, looked around. Oh, I love the city. Um, I love dim sum, as you do, <laughs> Fred. And uh, I went to Singapore. I uh, spent some time there. I love the city. It's a beautiful city, lovely city, but it's too hot. And uh, it's, it's a little further away from my home, Korea. So Hong Kong it is. That's why uh, I came to Hong Kong. And uh, when I was in the UK, in London. I went to London School of Economics for my graduate studies. And the location of the LSE, London School of Economics, was uh, very close to Inns of Court and the Royal uh, Supreme Court. So when I was walking around, I saw uh, barristers uh, coming in and out of courts. And uh, I, I learned about uh, the, the week that barristers have to wear in court. So that, that was intriguing. And when I did some research on Hong Kong, I also learned that Hong Kong, is, you know, being a uh, colony of the UK, uh, or having been a colony of the UK, Hong Kong has the same system as the UK, 
legal system. And Hong Kong barristers have to wear the same wigs. And it's like, if I can practice law and wear a wig, why not? So that's why I came to Hong Kong. And it must be in the back of your mind, uh, if Hong Kong were to implode more, are your skills transferable fairly easily to Singapore? Is that where your backup destination would be if you felt like you had to get out of Hong Kong? I think so, because 60% of my current practice is Hong Kong litigation. Um, many of the many of my cases are cross-border in nature, uh, and about 30% of my practice is uh, international arbitration and i do um not this year and not past year because of uh, covid 19. Uh, but uh, prior to that i traveled to korea traveled to singapore um, and other parts of asia to uh, do my arbitration practice so um, even though i will not be able to uh, stand in court uh, in Singapore, but I will still be able to do my arbitration practice anywhere, Singapore or Korea, for that matter. So to the extent that there's a typical day or week for you, can you tell us a little bit about it? I imagine you must be coordinating with solicitors quite a bit uh, from all around the world. I mean, what are the dynamics like in those relationships? The thing that I love about being a barrister is that there is no typical day or week for me, um, because it, it just depends on uh, how my cases uh, are um, happening. And I have uh, different cases that I'm working on at any given time. And um, sometimes I need to go to court in the morning, there's a hearing, or sometimes I have a week of uh, week long of uh, a trial that I need to prepare for and uh, stand in court to argue and whatnot. Um, so there, there's really no typical day or week. Um, and during the past year, uh, I don't even go to my chambers. Uh, we called our office uh, chambers, set of chambers. Um, and I don't even go to my chambers to work. I just mostly work from home. So there's no typical day. But if you ask me what I did last week, I had a three-day trial. For that, I had to prepare for two, three days. And the week before, I had a hearing, a court hearing. And um, in between, I have uh, conference calls with clients. As you said, uh, I need to work with solicitors for court litigation matters, not for international arbitration cases. For international arbitration cases, I can have direct contact with my clients and uh, I form my own team um, to do the work. So I don't necessarily have to work with solicitors, but for Hong Kong litigation cases, uh, I have to be instructed by solicitors. So I do work with solicitors. We do have our internal calls very often. Um, and um, sometimes I, work with uh, not just Hong Kong uh, solicitors, but with Korean lawyers or um, other lawyers from around the world. So I had Zoom calls almost on a daily basis, calls with my solicitors, calls with my clients, and uh, just do my preparation work. 
uh, mostly from home these days. And uh, when there is a trial, when there is a hearing, I, I, I go to the court to argue cases on behalf of my clients. And um, uh, for arbitration cases, I used to travel um, to different um, countries, as I said. Um, but now I did have virtual hearings uh, for arbitration cases. So Moses, without, of course, violating any of the confidentiality rules that uh, govern the work of all of us, um, could you perhaps maybe tell us about one or two cases that reflect the kind of work that you do, maybe just in, in, in very general terms, you know, just to just to know the kind of matters in which in which you get involved? Again, some very in, in very basic uh, terms, you know, who are the parties and what the dispute is about and, and maybe how long it takes to to sort out these disputes, you know, maybe some anecdotes, you know, that 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 could sort of help uh, illustrate what this this type of work is 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 all about. There is an interesting case that I've been working on for the past year and a half. Without giving any names, I can generally uh, talk about the case. Actually, there's there are two or three uh, decisions uh, handed down by the Hong Kong court. On, uh, on this case. So uh, some of the information is in the public domain. So I can have a little bit of, a little bit more freedom to talk about um, the case. I'm representing uh, two plaintiffs, one uh, individual and the other one company set up by uh, that individual. So um, two plaintiffs and we are going after 32 defendants in this suit. Some of them are individuals, some of them are companies. Um, one, of, uh, one of the defendants is actually a subsidiary of a uh, major casino. Um, what happened was uh, my client, or clients, I should say, uh, were defrauded of millions of dollars by uh, the lead client uh, assistant for over two, three years. My client didn't know that uh, he was being defrauded. Only after two years, he found out. Uh, it's because some of the companies were set up and managed by, by that assistant. And um, the finance was being managed by the assistant. And large sums of monies were transferred out from uh, these companies uh, to individuals that my client did not know at all. And subsequently, uh, some of the monies were transferred to a casino. Um, we suspect that there, is, there may be some money laundering activities. Um, and we're still in the investigation stage of it. These individuals are from many different countries, but uh, many of them are from one country. And some of the defendant companies are from seven different jurisdictions. So we have been tracing funds in so many different jurisdictions, and uh, we apply for disclosure order applications against a dozen of banks in Hong Kong, and uh, we've been tracing funds. Uh, we apply for an injunction order against all the defendants. 
So that's the sort of work that I do on cross-border nature. So I'm curious, how do the banks receive that? When you're trying to trace funds across multiple jurisdictions, are you working from the banks in Hong Kong with those offices uh, or at their corporate level and then making them do the work for you to get access to the funds wherever they might be offshore? Or do you have to go to the HSBC branch in BVI, for instance, in order to to be able to look at bank records that you need? We apply for disclosure orders against Hong Kong banks first. And if when we found out that some of the funds were uh, dissipated to other banks, then uh, we contact uh, first uh, the international banks uh, that are in Hong Kong to see whether we can get any information uh, from their, uh, their other branches. Uh, and we have been um, working with other lawyers from different jurisdictions to obtain information. But luckily, um, most of the bank accounts are held with uh, Hong Kong banks. So we were able to um, trace funds that way. But um, yeah, there, there are some accounts that are not in Hong Kong. So we're still uh, working with foreign lawyers to uh, further trace the funds. So Moses, you're the first Korean guest on our podcast, and we'd like you to put on that hat for a bit. Could you give us a, a, an overview for a few minutes of what's happening in Korea? In particular, we'd love to know uh, how things are going with the pandemic, what's the state of the economy, uh, any major news stories that people have been talking about. It, it's all interesting to us. Don't, don't think anything's too mundane. We're, we're very interested in what's going on. Sure. Um, as you know, Korea is an export-led economy. It is a uh, member country of the OECD identified as one of the G20 uh, major economies. It has a reputation for its high quality manufactured goods, electronics, microchips, and whatnot. Um, you all know about Samsung, LG, and other large Korean companies that produce these goods. And Korea has amazing talent. Korean people are very talented, um, I'm proud to say. And they're, they live all in different countries around the world um, doing all different things uh, in different uh, industries. I'm very proud of my uh, heritage and um, the way that Korean people have been uh, performing really well in uh, different sectors. Uh, in terms of the Korean Korea's response to COVID-19, it has been very impressive. Uh, Korea has had experience dealing with uh, Middle East respiratory system known as MERS in the past. And building on from that experience, Korea was able to flatten the uh, epidemic curve quickly without closing businesses, uh, issuing stay-at-home orders or implementing many of the stricter measures adopted by other first world countries until about you know, until late 2020. And Korea was the first country that came up with the drive-in test procedure, which uh, now has been adopted by uh, many countries. And I think Korea was able to achieve this success by developing clear guidelines for the public from the beginning of the pandemic and by conducting comprehensive testing and contact uh, tracing 
supporting people in quarantine to make compliance easier. Uh, detection was excellent, containment was uh, effective, and treatment was great. I have lived in many different countries and in major cities around the world, but in my humble opinion, Korea has one of the best healthcare systems in the world. And apart from our response to COVID-19, K-drama, K-food, um, K-beauty, other things uh, these days, not just in Asia, but um, or around the world. Um, BTS, I'm very surprised by the fact that uh, people in Europe or in, in the US, Canada, um, they, they go crazy over BTS and Blackpink, uh, a female group of uh, singers. Uh, they're also famous too. So I feel like Korea or Seoul in particular uh, has become the LA of the US. When I talk to people um, in Hong Kong, both local Hong Kong people and uh, foreigners living in Hong Kong, expats living in Hong Kong, um, they ask me about um, Korean dramas that I have no idea about. And they, they talk to me about Korean movie stars and uh, uh, singers that I do not really follow. It's great to see that. And it's great to see people love Korean culture. People love Korean food, our culture in general, I suppose. Yeah, you bring up some some very interesting aspects of of this almost uh, we could almost call it a Korean soft power. And I've also been pretty pretty impressed by the by the reach. I've seen you know even in Latin America there are people that are tuning into into K-pop, and that's great. We always have to somehow bring things back to China on this podcast. But you know, China has has become so almost divisive term, you know, here in the United States. If it's not checked, there's there's really a risk of that kind of tension really turning into, into a more pervasive rejection of things that come from overseas. I see that a lot during conversations about China policy, China trade policy in particular, where sometimes the lines are, are blurred between what is the challenge, the very real challenge that China presents but sometimes that just veers into some more general rejection of interaction with with other other economies, other countries. And I think it's it's a good contrast, and I think it's a good example to to point out to to say, look, I mean, there are countries out there doing great things, uh, setting an example when it comes to them to, to their management of COVID, doing fascinating things culturally, putting out great products. I mean, the the way that um, I was thinking earlier today about this movie parasite right and how it it just managed to really break down the, the traditional barriers that that exist when it comes to foreign film and one thing that i discovered when i was flying back and forth between the us and asia a lot and i don't i don't do that as often these days but i found that some of the best movies uh were the korean movies regardless of the airline whether it was delta or korean air they usually had korean movies and 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 i I knew that I would always find something good. So even you know, way before Parasite, I already I already knew that the Korean movie industry was putting out fantastic movies. Um, quite frankly, the sort of work that 
you rarely see here in the United States, right? And that's that's really saying something. I mean, really eclipsing Hollywood, frankly, in in many regards. So so yeah. So I think it's a it's a, a timely reminder that there's a lot to be to be gained from from interacting with with other countries and cultures and and seeing what they what they have to offer, right? It's not it's not all this uh, binary competition, a zero sum type uh, relationship. That's probably a great segue into our recommendations, which is how we end the podcast. Um, so Moses, I'd love to hear about your recommendations for our listeners. You know, you might have something else, but might as well, if, if you can, if, if there's some Korean movie, Korean artist, Korean drama that, <laughs> that you think we should be uh, looking out for, do let us know. I was actually thinking about a U.S. drama because uh, I spent quite a bit of time watching um, U.S. drama when I was studying in the U.S. and uh, elsewhere. Uh, and rather than talking about um, Korean dramas, uh, because we already talked quite a bit of it, um, I, I want to recommend Billions, which I have been uh, watching lately. It's a for for those of you who are not familiar with uh, what Billions is about. It is a legal finance drama um, on Netflix, and I've been enjoying it so much. It takes a, an insider look at the world of high finance in New York City, and by tracking the collision between two great figures, um, Chuck Rose, who is the U.S. Attorney of the Southern District of New York who is hard-charging, politically savvy, uh, politically ambitious on the one hand. And Chuck came from wealth. His father is a successful businessman. She went to a prep school, went to Yale, Yale Law. Father also went to Yale. Um, family legacy is utterly important to his father and to Chuck. Um, so you have uh, this figure on the one hand, and you have um, Bobby Axelrod, who is a famous hedge fund manager, a cold, do-it-at-all-cost uh, type. Bobby came from nothing. Uh, he didn't graduate from an Ivy League college. Uh, he's a self-made billionaire who's not afraid of any challenges. The thing that grabbed my attention is because uh, it's law versus money, justice versus criminals, morality versus immorality. Um, you see the soul of New York in the, in the balance um, as tough U.S. attorney Chuck Rose squares off against a billionaire hedge fund uh, manager, Bobby Axelrod. And what is so interesting about Billions is that it becomes murky as the story goes on, what justice is and what is right, who is right. Um, characters in, uh, in Billions all have their own agendas. And sometimes their own agendas overtake the sense of justice, the sense of morality, uh, even for those who should be the guardians of justice and morality. And that interface between morality, immorality, justice, crime, that is very interesting. And Chuck Rose commits crimes when it suits his needs. And uh, Bobby Axelrod, on the other hand, uh, is sometimes he he's seemed to be more 
moral in a sense than uh, supposedly the guardian of uh, justice. So it's really interesting. And the plot is great. Um, Characters are very uh, realistically depicted. And um, acting is just great. So I would highly recommend Billions to, um, to anybody. Well, thank you for that. Definitely going to add that to, to, to my list, you know, with the pandemic, right? Uh, there, there's a need to keep replenishing the, <laughs> the playlist. That's awesome. Th- thank you for that recommendation. Jonathan, what do you have for us? My recommendation this week is a piece in The Federalist, and it's called China's Digital Currency Threatens America's Financial Dominance. I picked this because I've asked previous guests about China's digital currency. Uh, it's big in the news lately. And so this article is a great summary, not a, not a super long read, but it, it hits the highlights as to some reasons why China wanted to roll out its digital currency and also speculates on some reasons why China would roll out a digital currency. Um, so interesting, if you're into monetary policy at all or you like macroeconomics, highly recommend that. It's in the Federalist called China's Digital Currency Threatens America's Financial Dominance. Fred, what about you? So my recommendation this week is um, a relatively short piece by David French. This is from The Dispatch. Um, and I literally read it right before right before we started recording. The title is, Is America Living in a 9-10 Moment? And 9-10 in that context refers to uh, September 10th, right? So alluding to, to September 11th, 2001. And basically suggesting or, or wondering if we are on the verge of a dramatic event or, or events in the world that will prove as dramatic as, as um, September 11th did in 2001. Um, in, in this particular case, he's not talking about terrorism. He's, he's focusing really on the potential of a large-scale conventional war. He, he alludes to uh, what's happening in Taiwan, what's happening in the Ukraine, and I think it's a it's a very timely reflection, as he points out in the in the article. This these are really issues that, for decades now, we've sort of put on the back burner, and in a way, there's there's almost a direct correlation between our ability to focus on stuff that's probably relatively meaningless in the grander scheme of things, and, and the fact that we don't have to worry about these uh, existential issues. And a little plug um, in the article. French mentions the Dispatch, which is the publication. They every morning they they put out a newsletter called the Morning Dispatch, and he mentioned a little piece that they had about Taiwan, and I was quoted in that little piece. So there you go, double recommendation, if you if you will. So anyway, again, is America living in a nine ten moment by David French, and that came out an hour ago, so April thirteenth. And with that, Moses, uh, I'd like to, to thank you once again for being our guest. Really enjoyed this opportunity to, to catch up with you. We, we hadn't talked in a while, but learned a lot of new things about you. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, you, you're, you're the kind of guest that we love to talk to, right? Um, there's so much that you can tell us about in terms of all things international, right? The legal aspects were, were just uh, the beginning of it. So... With that, thank you, and we look forward to having you on the podcast again. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams. 
music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.